You know that's the sound of another sale on your online Shopify store. But did you know Shopify powers selling in person too? That's right. Shopify is the sound of selling everywhere. Online, in store, on social media, and beyond. Shopify POS is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. With Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers in-line and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. Get hardware that fits your business. Take payments by smartphone, transform your tablet into a point-of-sale system, or use Shopify's POS Go mobile device for a battle-tested solution. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash crimes, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash crimes to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash crimes. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Voices for Justice is a podcast that uses adult language and discusses sensitive and potentially triggering topics, including violence, abuse, and murder. This podcast may not be appropriate for younger audiences. All parties are innocent until proven guilty in a court of law. Some names have been changed or omitted per their request or for safety purposes. Listener discretion is advised. My name is Sarah Turney, and this is Voices for Justice. Today, I am discussing the death of 43-year-old Jessica Easterly. On August 12, 2019, Jessica called her best friend, begging her to pick her up. She didn't go into a lot of detail, but she said that things were bad at home and she needed to get out. But before her friend could get to her, she lost communication with Jessica. And unfortunately, 10 days later, her remains were discovered by her own sister. This is truly a crazy and devastating case. But more importantly, it needs justice. I actually found out about this case from Jessica's sister, Audrey. She reached out to me on Twitter in August of 2020 asking for some advice about Jessica's case. And we ended up talking on the phone for an hour, and I was just blown away by what she was telling me. At that time, I wasn't covering other cases on this podcast but I promised her that someday I would cover Jessica's case. Now, since that one-hour conversation wasn't a formal interview, it was really just me trying to help, I didn't record it. And right now, Jessica's friends and family are actually not giving interviews about the case. But Audrey did give me permission to use my notes from that call. And she asked me to please put out the episode without them to help share her sister's story. 
And of course I said I would. So this is the unsolved death of Jessica Easterly. This episode of Voices for Justice is brought to you by June's Journey. I'm pretty sure everyone here loves a good mystery, especially one with as many twists and turns as June's Journey. You get to step into the role of June Parker and search for hidden clues to uncover the mystery of her sister's murder. You engage your observation skills to quickly uncover key pieces of information that lead to chapters of mystery, danger, and romance. So what does that mean? Well, June's Journey is a hidden object mystery game. Essentially, you find hidden clues and uncover this mystery. But it's also more than that. You can customize your own luxurious estate island, you can join a detective club, and put your skills to the test in a detective league. I like that you can play totally alone, or if you want to play with other people, you can do that too. I find myself playing June's Journey in little breaks during the day, or most frequently at night before I go to bed. Whether you're craving a good mystery or just looking for an escape, I really do recommend June's Journey. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Jessica Renee Easterly was born on August 17, 1976, at the Biloxi Hospital in Mississippi to her parents, Rick and Donna. And she grew up in Ocean Springs, Mississippi, right along the coast. She was one of four children and had two sisters, Amanda and Audrey, and one brother named Edgar. According to Jessica's family, her favorite thing to do was read, and you could always find her with her nose in a book but she also loved family traditions, especially the holidays, and she loved Santa Baby from Marilyn Monroe. It was absolutely her favorite Christmas song. Jessica graduated from Ocean Springs High School in 1994, and as she got older, Jessica became increasingly interested in fashion and makeup. Her friends and sisters say that they always depended on her if they needed a makeover for a night out, stating that she really just had an eye for those types of things. Jessica had a long history of working in the service industry, and this is where she would meet her soon-to-be best friend, Maria Krill, who would later become crucial in Jessica's case. Eventually, Jessica would graduate from the University of South Alabama, having focused her studies on audiology and speech pathology. But I couldn't find much about her job history beyond her work in the service industry. So I'm not entirely sure why she pursued this degree or what she planned on using it for. But with studies like speech pathology and audiology, which has to do with the science of hearing, it sounds like she probably wanted to help people with speech or hearing complications. Again, unfortunately, I don't know a lot about what happens to Jessica between college and the year 2010. But around 2010, Jessica moves from Alabama back to Mississippi and meets the man that she would later marry. I was able to find a web page made by Jessica for her wedding. It's one of those pages that outlines how her and her husband met, the proposal, and the honeymoon. And according to Jessica, she met Justin Durning when she was invited by a friend to go out on a boat for a day. She describes it as love at first sight and writes that she and Justin just couldn't keep their eyes off of each other for the entire day. She did see him a few times after this day on the boat, but after losing touch with the friend that initially introduced them to each other, she didn't see him again for a while. It wouldn't be until 2011 that they would reconnect. 2011 is also the same year that Justin Durning was arrested twice in Harrison County, Mississippi 
once on July 28th for apparently driving his vehicle through a barricade while possibly under the influence, and for contributing to the delinquency of a minor. And his second arrest was on August 16th for domestic abuse. Now, it is important to note that Jessica's family believes that these arrests happened shortly before Justin and Jessica started dating. So it appears that shortly after these arrests, Justin is ready to date someone new. And he remembers that girl he met on that boat and saw a few times about a year ago and somehow tracked her down and got her phone number. He drives from past Christian, Mississippi to Jessica in Ocean Springs, and they hit it off again. Fast forward four years on February 25th, 2015, Jessica and Justin have a beach-themed wedding at the Hard Rock Casino and Hotel with a very small group of friends and family. Jessica wore an ivory backless dress with a short train, and they said their vows at sunset. Jessica Easterly was now Jessica Durning and became a family with Justin and his young daughter. The family would eventually settle in this more upscale neighborhood of Lakeview in New Orleans, Louisiana. In my research, I couldn't find much about Justin that I could verify. He states online that he's a weapons instructor of some kind and has vast military experience. But Jessica's friends and family dispute both of these points. However, what we do know is that when Jessica and Justin began dating, they both embarked on this new business creating adult content together online. Jessica and Justin did use aliases while doing this work, and these names are widely available on the internet. But as we will later learn, one big cause of upset and concern for Jessica's family is that Justin could still be distributing these videos, images, and even intimate items of Jessica for profit. So, in an effort to not direct any traffic towards these videos that could still be up, I will not be sharing these aliases in this episode. But Jessica took this work very seriously, and it seems that she and Justin were doing pretty well. In January of 2019, they even did an interview together about their work in the industry, the stigma that surrounds it, and mental health. Although this article depicts Jessica and Justin as a healthy, loving couple, Jessica's family has shared information on their website, justiceforjessica.org, that paints a very different picture. There is actually a ton of information in general on their website, so I definitely encourage you all to check it out. But in one screenshot, we see a Facebook message sent by Jessica to her friend Lo from January 16th, 2019 at 3 p.m. that says, quote, Hey, I need to talk to you about this weekend. I'm hiding in the bathroom right now so Justin doesn't hear me. We've been fighting, like fighting, for the past three days about everything. He's threatening to kick me out, put me in jail. He's hit me. It's bad. He told me you guys can't come or it's going to be worse for me. Lo, I'm so sorry. I know it's last minute and I feel awful. I don't know what to do. I can recommend somewhere that's reasonable and nice, the bee on the canal. We used to stay there a lot. Lo, I'm scared. End quote. When I spoke to Audrey, she told me that she and her sister Amanda always felt that Justin was pretty controlling over Jessica, but they didn't realize that she was being physically abused until Jessica's best friend Maria told them. Essentially, Maria tells Jessica's family that she was stuck in this terrible cycle of physical and mental abuse, where Jessica and Justin were constantly breaking up and making up. 
And when Jessica threatened to leave the situation, Justin would tell her things like she would never see her stepdaughter again, or that he was going to have his friends and special ops hunt her down and kill her. Other times, he would flat out tell her to leave. No one truly knows the inner workings of relationships except for the people involved. But from what Audrey told me, it seemed pretty unhealthy. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. We're going to fast forward seven months to Monday, August 12th, 2019 at about 11 in the morning. This is when Maria misses two calls from Jessica, but she ends up picking up on the third ring. According to Maria, Jessica is super upset and asks Maria to come get her, but she doesn't go into a lot of detail, just saying that it's really bad. And Maria is more than happy to go pick up Jessica. But the issue is that Maria lives two hours away, in Mobile, Alabama, and her kids were getting out of school in just a few hours. And she didn't have anyone to watch them while she went to pick up Jessica, and she definitely didn't want to bring them to this potentially very dangerous situation. So she tells Jessica, listen, I'm going to take the day off of work tomorrow, and I will come pick you up tomorrow right after I drop off the kids at school in the morning. At 2.43 p.m., Maria messages Jessica and says that she needs to talk to her husband about everything when he gets home. And Jessica responds with, quote, Okay, hang on, I don't know what's going to happen when I get home. End quote. But Maria didn't hear back from Jessica that night, or the next day when she tried to confirm the plan to pick Jessica up. However, we do know that Jessica's stepdaughter reports seeing Jessica on Tuesday the 13th. She tells Maria that Jessica was just doing a lot of cleaning around the house, and that on the next day, now Wednesday the 14th, she got herself up for school and left the house assuming that Jessica was still asleep in bed. But she never saw Jessica to really be able to confirm this. At exactly 9pm on Wednesday night, Maria gets a Facebook message from Justin using Jessica's account, asking if Jessica is with her. He also states that it's fine if she is, but their daughter can't handle this type of stress. Maria responds and says that she's not with Jessica, and she asks him when's the last time he saw her. And Justin replies and says it was about noon earlier that day. And he adds that Jessica left behind her phone, keys, ID, and the vehicle that they shared. And he tells Maria that he's checked everywhere he can think of, but he can't find her. And that he's getting pretty worried at this point because she's never done this before. But knowing Justin and Jessica's history, Maria isn't messing around. And she tells Justin that she's sending the police over to their house right now. And Justin's response was, okay, but you're gonna freak out our daughter. But again, Maria isn't playing around. And she says, listen, if my husband came home and I was gone and all my stuff was there, he would already be talking to the police. And Justin says, quote, I know how to file a missing persons report. Do you think I hurt her or something? The police can't do anything until 24 hours. She's an adult. 
I'm checking hospitals and jails now. End quote. And at 12.10 p.m., Justin writes Maria again, confirming that he called the hospitals and the jails and there's no sign of Jessica. And he adds, quote, Call police and missing persons is 24 hours last seen to file a report. I have got to be missing something. End quote. But despite this message about being told that he had to wait 24 hours to file a report, Justin doesn't wait. According to an incident report that I obtained from the New Orleans Police Department, Justin reports Jessica missing on the morning of Thursday, August 15th at 12.52 a.m. And the police do come out to the home and take a report in person. Justin tells the police that the last time he saw Jessica was at 1 p.m. before Justin went to bed. However, it's important to note that in the same report, the police state that Justin last saw her at 12.30 p.m., so whether Justin reported two different times or the police made a mistake is unknown. But Justin tells the police that he woke up about two hours later at 3 p.m. and Jessica was gone. Justin tells the police that she left behind her purse, wallet, phone, keys, and medication that she took for her bipolar disorder. And he adds that he didn't think anything was missing from the home. He mentions his efforts in calling jails and hospitals and he tells them that the last time he saw Jessica, she was wearing blue jeans and a t-shirt. The report also mentions that a friend did request a wellness check earlier in the day. Part of this section is redacted, but according to the report, Officer Gatner made a call to someone in relation to this welfare check. But no one picked up the phone. Whether they were calling Jessica's home to try to speak with her, or they were trying to call Maria back to give her a status update on the welfare check is unclear. But there is no confirmation in this report as to whether or not anyone actually went to Jessica and Justin's home to check on her. But later that day, at 1.29pm, Maria gets another message from Justin, stating, quote, I'm about to go all out on social media and every other asset I have to find out if my wife is safe. I have a child throwing up and needs to know if her mom's okay. Here is the missing persons report. If you know where she is and that she's okay, I would appreciate you telling me before all of the world knows our personal problems. End quote. He follows up by stating that this is really messing up their daughter. But again, Maria just isn't having it, and she cuts right to the chase with Justin, writing, quote, If she left because you're an asshole to her, I'm 100% supportive of her doing that. The problem I'm having is that I'm the person she would call, and I haven't heard from her since Monday. So either some random person in this big, dangerous city you live in has taken my friend, or you lost your shit because she was trying to leave from my point of view. Because honestly, I can't even name one single other friend that she has left. It doesn't make sense that she would leave and not tell me something. End quote. And at this point, Justin just accuses Maria of making things all about her. So Maria says, listen, for the sake of your daughter, I will let you know if I hear from her. And during this time, while Maria is still receiving all these messages from Justin, she's still trying to follow up with the police and find out what they're doing to find Jessica. And eventually, she gets a voicemail from the New Orleans Police Department with the name and number of the detective assigned to Jessica's case. Maria finally connects with this detective and is told that they are going to go out to Jessica and Justin's house to ask him some questions. 
and they do go out to the house, but no one answers the door. So at this point, Maria doesn't really know what to do, so she takes matters into her own hands and creates the first missing persons flyer for Jessica. And she begins sharing this on Facebook. And to her credit, this got a lot of people talking, including Justin, who at about 6pm on Monday, August 19th, so now a week to the day since Maria last spoke to Jessica, Justin tells Maria over text message, quote, Maria, you have no idea what I've been doing here on the ground and with people in positions to help. I appreciate the posters and trust me when I tell you I have been non-stop. This is my whole life we are talking about. Whether or not you believe that is out of my control. And Maria responds, saying, quote, That's good to know. Like who? What are their names so the police can coordinate with them to look for her? And Justin gets defensive, saying, quote, Do you think I'm not on the phone or in person with the police? Come on, Maria. And Maria responds, quote, You said you have people looking for her. Do you mean police or friends of yours? I'm just not sure what people on the ground means. I'm trying to understand. And in the last text message we have between Justin and Maria, Justin writes, quote, Friends at the TV station here I graduated with. Head of canine, chief of fire investigation. I don't have time to type all of this at the moment. The head of central casting, it goes on. End quote. Something else that comes through creating and sharing this poster for Jessica on Facebook is that Maria is finally able to connect with Jessica's sisters, Audrey and Amanda, to let them know that Jessica was missing, the circumstances leading up to it all with the frantic phone calls and the plan to pick her up. And of course, she also tells them all about her and Justin's relationship. On August 22nd, 2019, so now 10 days since Maria last spoke with Jessica, Jessica's sisters Amanda and Audrey and their cousin Doug make the trip out to New Orleans to meet with police to make a plan to search for Jessica. But they are traveling from a few hours away, so they get to the city early and just kind of decide to search the area for themselves before this meeting. So they head towards City Park, which is this large park just two blocks away from Jessica and Justin's house. They are at the intersection of Orleans Avenue and Kenilworth Street, when they smell something awful. Something that smells like it could be a dead body. So they stop the car, park, and get out and follow the scent. And sure enough, Audrey sees her sister's body, laying just feet from the road. And she calls over her sister Amanda to confirm. She couldn't believe it. She literally found her sister in the first place they looked. Which of course made her wonder if the New Orleans Police Department looked for Jessica at all. Because due to the advanced state of decomposition that Jessica's body was in, it looked like she had been there for some time. It's important to note that Jessica was wearing a black tank top, black shorts, and black shoes when she was found, which is a completely different outfit from Justin's last reported sighting of Jessica. Audrey told me that she didn't feel like the police spent a lot of time at the scene when they found Jessica. She told me that they pretty much just scooped Jessica up and left without even taping off the scene. During our call, I didn't ask Audrey for details about what Jessica looked like when she found her, but she did tell me 
that the police repeatedly told her family that there didn't appear to be any trauma or sign of damage on Jessica's body other than this advanced state of decomposition. And although Jessica's family did identify her body at the scene, on September 1st, 2019, the police collected DNA from Jessica's mother to confirm the match. But according to Audrey, this DNA was misplaced on someone's desk at the New Orleans Police Department and experienced a severe delay in processing. It wouldn't be until two months later on November 8th that they would officially confirm the remains to be Jessica. During this time, Jessica's body is still sitting in the morgue, waiting for an autopsy to be performed. And Jessica's family is understandably not pleased. In an interview with WDSU, Jessica's stepfather expresses his frustration. This thing would not have taken as long as it has had she not laid in the New Orleans sun for a week and a half before her body was found. Unfortunately, Jessica's body would continue to sit in the morgue waiting for an autopsy to be performed for a few more months. And we'll get to that. But it's around this time in November of 2019 that Audrey's family finds out some pretty shocking and disturbing news about Justin. According to Audrey, even after the discovery that Jessica was in fact deceased and not missing, it appears that Justin was keeping this a secret from his peers in the adult industry, because he was continuing not only to sell Jessica's old videos, but he was actually posing as Jessica online and he was messaging people to sell off these videos and these pictures and these intimate items of hers like lingerie and shoes. I don't know exactly which websites Justin was using, but it seems like it could have been something pretty similar to OnlyFans, where people will pay to interact with you privately and pay for extras like videos, pictures, and things sent in the mail. This would allow Justin to sell these videos and pictures from his over four years of working with Jessica over and over again to new customers. But eventually Jessica's peers in the community did catch wind of this, and they would actually later help Jessica's family in all of these efforts to get these videos and images of Jessica posted after her death removed. But unfortunately, again according to Audrey, This exploitation of Jessica by Justin doesn't stop there. On December 6, 2019, a GoFundMe is created under Jessica and Justin's adult industry aliases. The stated purpose of this fundraiser was to raise money for a memorial service for Jessica. And in exchange for these donations, Justin is offering to send people pictures of Jessica, and again, physical items, such as her lingerie and her shoes. But this GoFundMe doesn't elicit many donations and is eventually shut down. But that doesn't stop Justin, because on December 15th, 2019, Justin creates another GoFundMe, this time under Justin Durning for his wife, Jessica Durning. But this fundraiser would too be taken down. These fundraisers really confused Jessica's family. Because at this point, Justin has only called them one time since Jessica's death, and he never mentioned any plans of having a memorial service for her, or tried to coordinate with them to do so. 
I can't imagine the pain Jessica's friends and family experienced as each day passed knowing that Jessica's body was just sitting in the morgue alone, and that the police didn't seem to be in any type of rush for answers. Jessica's body remained in the morgue over Thanksgiving and Christmas. It wouldn't be until January of 2020 that the autopsy would finally be performed and the coroner would come back with his official report about what happened to Jessica. Now, I am obviously not an expert on body decomposition or the autopsy process, but like most of you, I assume I do consume my fair share of true crime content. And when I found out that this autopsy was delayed by about four months, I was stunned. So I had to find out whether or not this was normal. And according to American Forensics, a company specializing in forensic autopsy services, quote, The autopsy should be performed as soon as possible after death to prevent changes of decomposition from interfering with examination results. When the deceased is properly cooled, a brief delay of several days generally will not interfere with the autopsy results. The results of some specialized tests may be affected by a delay in the autopsy examination. End quote. So, whether or not a body that has been identified sitting in a morgue for four months waiting for an autopsy is normal or not, I still don't know. But I think we can determine that it's not ideal. And waiting for this amount of time probably resulted in getting less detailed information about Jessica. But let's get into this report. Contrary to the police telling Jessica's family that there didn't seem to be any type of trauma, it does appear that Jessica did in fact sustain some injuries before and after her death. She had a fractured nose, a broken jaw, a broken C4 vertebra, which is located right behind your windpipe, and she had a post-mortem disarticulation of the left second rib that is reported to have been caused by the police handling Jessica's body. The Orleans Parish Coroner's Office released a statement stating, quote, Advanced changes of decomposition can make determination of cause and manner of death difficult, as it did in this case. Due to this decomposition, toxicology testing was limited to liver tissue, which did test positive for methamphetamine and bupropion. However, it is unclear if these results reflect recent intake and a drug-related death cannot be ruled out, end quote. Ultimately, the cause and manner of death is listed as undetermined, and there is no mention as to how Jessica could have sustained these injuries. In all transparency, I don't know anything about Jessica's drug use or bipolar diagnosis, if there even is one, and I wasn't able to find any statements from friends or family about it in my research so I'm not going to speculate on it. But I did look up bupropion, and it appears to be used to treat depression and bipolar, so this would correlate with Justin's statement to police about Jessica being bipolar. If Jessica did have a mental illness, I think it is important to factor that into this story. But again, we have very limited information about this, so I really don't want to speculate. But it appears that the New Orleans Police Department certainly did, because according to Audrey, after the autopsy and toxicology report came out, 
the police tell her that they believe Jessica's injuries could have been a result of her simply wandering into this forest area and falling down. Aside from it being extremely difficult to believe that a fall in the woods could result in things like a broken vertebra and jaw, she basically says that Jessica was blind as a bat and couldn't see anything without her contacts or glasses. And in the autopsy report, there's no mention of contact lenses. And no glasses were recovered from the area that Jessica was found in. So if Jessica, just for whatever reason, be it abuse, mental illness, or because she was on drugs, wandered into this tree line area, fell and killed herself, or possibly overdosed and caused these injuries to herself, how would she get to the park in the first place without literally being able to see? I suppose it is possible that Jessica was on a lot of meth, freaked out, and wandered into this area just a few blocks from her house without being able to see. Then she could have overdosed there, and when she fell to the ground, possibly hit a tree or rock that caused these injuries. But I haven't seen Audrey mention anything like a tree or rock nearby with blood on it that would make sense in this scenario. And I have a very hard time believing that this was some type of freak accident where she tripped and killed herself, especially given all of the circumstantial evidence and given the fact that even the coroner can't confirm what could have caused these injuries outside of that broken rib. But unfortunately, due to the time it took to find Jessica's body, and then in my opinion, the severe delay in performing the autopsy, which again, we learned that just a few days can affect the validity of these tests. I'm not sure we will ever be able to determine if the levels of drugs found in Jessica's system were enough to result in or contribute to her death. After presenting Jessica's family with these theories that the death could have been an accident or a drug overdose, they say that the case is now considered to be cold, and they release Jessica's body to Justin. But Jessica's family is frustrated. They have Jessica's body, and they have a ton of circumstantial evidence pointing to her husband, who at this point, again, hasn't even been formally questioned. And the police are ready to call this an accident or overdose without the toxicology report to prove it. So Jessica's family doesn't accept these theories, and I don't blame them, especially after what happens next. According to Audrey's social media posts, on the same day that the New Orleans Police Department sits down with Jessica's family and says that they've done all they can at this point and that the case is cold, Justin is actually detained for 24 hours after a pretty strange incident. So apparently Justin is in some bar when he approaches a woman and she says her name is Jessica. This woman reports that Justin was acting pretty crazy and he tells her that his wife committed suicide and that she should take all of her clothes. But this woman's co-worker actually recognizes Justin from posts on social media and tells her friend, like, hey, a lot of people are suspicious of this guy in relation to his wife's death, and no one is saying it's a suicide. So this woman calls the police and tells them exactly what happened, and Justin is detained. But we do know that Justin is not formally questioned by police at this time. And from here, things only get stranger and continue to cast a bad light on Justin, especially when a huge discovery is made in the case. 
On March 15, 2020, a couple in Jessica and Justin's neighborhood call Audrey, and they tell her that they just found a blanket and Jessica's ID card about 15 yards from where Jessica's body was found. Now, remember, this is the same ID card that Justin tells Maria and the police that Jessica left behind before she disappeared. The family actually posted a picture of this ID on their website, and this thing is mangled. It's folded, it's either cut or torn, and some parts look like they are rubbed off. To be fair, we don't know what the original state of the card was but the damage on this thing was pretty intense. So, of course, this leads to a ton of questions. How did this ID card get there? Was it missed by police or brought to the scene after? Was this ID taken from Justin's house and placed there? Did Jessica have two ID cards, one that was unknown to her husband? Does Justin still have the ID card he says that Jessica left behind? Why was this card so damaged? I would think if someone was trying to destroy it, they would shred it or cut it up into little pieces as opposed to leaving it mostly intact and able to be identified as Jessica's. And how did no one find this before? Unfortunately, we don't know the answers to any of these questions. But of course, Audrey calls the detective on Jessica's case and informs him of this discovery. He asks for the couple's information and says they definitely want to get those items and interview the couple. But when Audrey follows up with that couple a few weeks later, they say that no one has been in contact with them. At this point, Jessica's family is pretty understandably absolutely fed up, and they file an official complaint with the Public Integrity Bureau for failing to investigate Jessica's death. And in August of 2020, they finally get a response stating that a formal investigation into the New Orleans Police Department's handling of Jessica's case has been launched. And by September, so five months after this blanket and Jessica's ID is found, Detective Lum from the New Orleans Police Department finally interviews the couple. And by October, they were back at Justin's house trying to ask him some questions. But they were again unable to speak with him. However... On that same day, a futon and a headboard from Jessica's room was placed on the curb right in front of their home. So, the New Orleans Police Department sends out a team to collect samples from both of these items. I think it's important to note that at this time, so about nine months after Jessica's body is released to Justin, she's actually still sitting in the morgue. And it appears that Justin never made any arrangements for her to be laid to rest. After many pleas from Jessica's family, he also refused to release the body to them. And it wouldn't be until February 2nd of 2021, so 530 days after Jessica was found, that the morgue finally released her to her family so that they could hold a small, COVID-friendly celebration of life for her with just a few family members. I have to be honest. This part really got to me. I don't care what you think about Jessica being a sex worker. And I don't care what you think about meth being found in her system. She has a lot of people who loved her very much, including a stepdaughter who very much considered Jessica to be her mother. And all of them. And Jessica. 
deserved to have a full celebration of life with her friends and family. And had Justin just been a little sympathetic, a little human, and released Jessica's body to her family, instead of just keeping her in the morgue for some unknown reason, they could have held a ceremony for Jessica before the pandemic hit so everyone could attend, honor her life, and say goodbye. Even if Justin just wanted to have his own ceremony for just him and his daughter, I would respect that. But to just let her sit seems so cruel and cold. I really wish I could understand his reasoning behind this decision, because maybe there is more there. But I just don't see it. Unfortunately, this is pretty much where the case stands today. And as far as I could find... Jessica's death is still undetermined and isn't officially being investigated as a homicide. Jessica and Justin's home has never been searched, and Justin has still never been formally questioned. The family is also still waiting on the results of the testing of the futon and the headboard. But the New Orleans Police Department insists that they are still actively trying to find answers about what happened to Jessica. Which brings me to our call to action. Jessica's sister Audrey and her friend Maria are still very much trying to get this case into the media in hopes of generating leads. Please report it to Crime Stoppers at 1-877-903-7867. This can be done anonymously. And as a reminder, no tip or piece of information is too small. You never know what could be that final puzzle piece to finding out what happened to Jessica. Surely, someone in their upscale neighborhood captured Jessica on camera of some type, or saw her walking or being taken towards where her body was found. And if Jessica did overdose, someone sold her or someone she knew those drugs. The bottom line is that someone knows something, and it's time they come forward with that information. And although it does appear that the investigation into their work around this case has sparked some motivation into the New Orleans Police Department, the unfortunate theme around this case is that they don't really seem to care about finding a resolution for someone like Jessica. Jessica's family has repeatedly expressed fear and concern that Jessica's case has been and continues to be a lesser priority because of the way that she is being perceived. And to be honest, from my experience in true crime, women like Jessica who were sex workers, suffered domestic abuse, and are found with drugs in their system are consistently overlooked. As if they aren't worthy of justice as if their families don't deserve answers just as much as any other family who has experienced a horrific tragedy such as this. Jessica was a daughter, sister, wife, and mother. She was loved, she was valued, and she added value to this world. Jessica and her family deserve a full investigation into her death. And they need our help to amplify their voices and share her story to ensure that happens. But as always, thank you, I love you, and I'll talk to you next time. Voices for Justice is hosted and produced by me, Sarah Turney. 
For more information about the podcast, to suggest a case, to see resources used for this episode, and to find out more about how to help the cases I discuss, visit VoicesForJusticePodcast.com. And if you enjoyed this episode, please take a moment to rate and review the show in your podcast player. It really does help more people find the podcast and these cases in need of justice.